Hey, welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it up. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. That guy seems cool. Thanks, Keith. Makes me look good. Uh, you know, I, I can't use Pastor Sean's podium because it's too tall. So this is Pastor Sonny's. <laughs> uh, my name is Matt. I'm glad to be with you. I am a Messianic rabbi from Seattle, Washington. I'm married to my wife, uh, Laura, for 20 years. We have three kids. They're getting old. We are not getting old. They are. Um, And I'm excited to talk to you today from 2 Timothy, continuation of the series you guys have uh, been in. And Pastor Sean last week talked about uh, there's six metaphors that Timothy gives Really, I think for those who aspire to teach and preach the Bible, um, which isn't just about teaching and preaching on a stage as much as it is teaching and preaching in your life, the way that you live. And so uh, Paul gives six metaphors in 2 Timothy, and Pastor Sean talked about last week the good soldier, the dedicated athlete, and the hard-working farmer, which coincidentally, I am none of those things. And he said, you know, the more we struggle, the more God succeeds. The more we endure suffering, just as Jesus did, we do towards a purpose, which is to be strong in Jesus. He talked about the purpose of this church and for multiplication and dedication to Jesus and to suffer as he did, which is hard for people in the United States of America because we don't really understand suffering to the same degree as the rest of the world because we're very comfortable in the way that we live. You know, air conditioning's not working. We're not working. That's suffering. (laughs) But we don't realize that, well, most people don't have air conditioning. So the three metaphors we're going to talk about today from 2 Timothy are the unashamed worker, the set-apart vessel, and the humble servant, which coincidentally, I'm none of those things either, but that's why the title is Living What You Preach. <laughs> you got to wrestle with what the scriptures say and whether you're applying it to your life. So look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and, uh, and verse 14. The first is the unashamed worker. It says, keep reminding God's people of these things and warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value, and it only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. That's a Packer reference, by the way. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection's already taken place 
and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, Pastor Shaw said in his sermon last week from verse one of 2 Timothy, that and was the message name of his message, which was, we take strength in Jesus. We're to be strong in Jesus. And Paul continues, verse 14, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words because it's of no value and it only ruins those who listen. We have to keep reminding people I'm gonna remind you so you can remind other people. We remind people of these things from the scripture. Pastor Sean talked about the good soldier, the dedicated athlete, the hardworking farmer. They're metaphors for us to understand who God wants us to be. But he also says, watch out for quarreling about words. Man, if we don't fight over every little word, if we don't take positions on everything, if we don't have opinions of everything, we have entire uh, channels, 24-hour channels, dedicated to people's opinions about what's happening. They call it news, but it's opinions. (laughs) Whatever, whichever side you watch, it's the same thing. We quarrel about words, and worse, we as followers of Jesus quarrel about the words of the Bible and and what it should look like and how we should do things and our theology. And there's truth that is just true, but it's a very short list of things that we know for sure. Most of the things that we get upset about and that we argue over are opinions of men and women that we somehow tie ourselves to. Somebody says to me, as a rabbi, somebody say, well, you know, Martin Luther said, and I say, well, you know, that was 1,500 years too late. Like, Judaism had 2,500 years before that, before the 1,500 plus the 50, it's a long time. And Martin Luther's, everybody, all teachers of scriptures have good things to contribute and say, but there are also things that they are wrong about. And there's things that we are wrong about that we don't want to admit to anyone that we're wrong about. Verse 15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. How do you present yourself to God as one who is approved? By living what you preach. And it's hard to do, especially in a context like this, when you preach to lots of people who don't know you. There's a whole lot of highlights. It's like a highlight reel. You get all the good stuff when you hear me preach. You don't see me get angry at my kids. You don't see me argue over ridiculous things like, you know, is Marvel better than DC? Which the obvious answer is Marvel. Come on, guys. It's ridiculous. Batman's got some street cred, but let's be honest. That's a whole, okay. 
do your best to present yourself as one who is approved and correctly handles the word of truth. Do you know how many people speak from the Bible and all believe at the same time that we are correctly handling the word of truth, but we say opposite things of each other? The way that you correctly handle the word of truth is not to be right all of the time. It's to understand the context of what's come before. It's to understand history. It's to understand language. And, you know, the, the Hebrew scriptures was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. If you want to correctly handle the word of truth, you have to know a little bit about those things. So we live in a time and an age where you can look things up on the interwebs and get information. The problem is you got to be careful where you get your information. People come up to me as a rabbi and they say the weirdest stuff to me. Every year before Passover, somebody message, texts me or emails me or you know, direct message because in the Torah, it says you have to be circumcised in order to eat the Passover. So every year, I get an email from somebody that says, I'm a Gentile and I'm not circumcised. Can I come to the Passover? And my answer is, if you're gonna give me that kind of information, you should buy me a drink first. (laughs) Second, understand the context. Like, don't be a weirdo. Don't say weird things. It's like an apprentice learning a trade. You read the scriptures, not just to read it, but to understand it. And listen, I've been preaching long enough, and I, 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 we're talking about a humble servant in a few minutes, but I say it on, with humility. I have studied the scripture enough that I don't need to read it anymore. I could stand up in front of you and preach it and know what I'm talking about without investing any more work in my own life in the scriptures. And I could still be an effective preacher without the power of the Holy Spirit. But my prayer every time that I preach is being aware that I have the propensity to do that and to ask the Lord to not allow me to do that, to put me in a place and to keep me in a, in a, uh, as a, with an attitude of a learner that always has something to learn because there's so much. It's like an apprentice learning a trade. N.T. Wright says it this way for preachers. He says, it's like a pioneer hacking out a path through the jungle so that people can safely walk through to see where they are, the brambles, the creepers, and dead trees blocking the path, which the word should be following to people's hearts and minds, and we have to shift them out of the way. It echoes Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, echoes Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 40 and verse 3, when he says, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Or verse 9 of the same chapter, get yourself up on a high mountain. You can do that in Seattle, by the way. You can't do that in Green Bay. You got to like go to the top of Lambeau Field. You who bring good news to Zion, lift up your voice with strength. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. When we tell the story of the scriptures, we have to be very careful whether we're preaching on a stage or talking to people about the scriptures in our daily lives, 
that we're not just giving our opinion. It's okay to have an opinion. Just be clear when it's your opinion. And not everything you say about the scripture is fact. It's often someone else's opinion that you read. And opinions aren't bad, but you have to be able to uh, distinguish between telling the story that is actually in the text and be able to say, now, the rest of this is my opinion, because there's things that we're all going to be wrong about. Nobody's going to get to, we're not going to get to heaven. Jesus isn't going to stand up in front of everybody and say, there was a guy, I always say Wisconsin, actually. Hmm, That's funny. There's a guy in the middle of nowhere in a cabin in Wisconsin, (laughs) Jimmy. He had everything right. You guys should have listened to him. Like nobody is going to be, God isn't going to celebrate any preacher in heaven. This guy. This guy, he knew what he was talking about. No, we have things that were, and when we quarrel about our words, verse 16 says it's like godless chatter that spreads like gangrene. We start to argue over our opinions and divide congregations and leave communities and argue about all the things. I mean, the last two and a half years have been arguments about all kinds of nonsense. You know, whatever side of politics you're on, like Jesus isn't going to stand in front of us and be like, you know what, it was the greatest thing that we're going to get to this great white throne and the 24 elders are going to be around the throne and we're all going to be singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then Jesus is going to step forward and go, the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world was democracy. <laughs> He's not going to care. It doesn't mean democracy is bad. And he's not going to go there and be like, you know what the worst thing was? Communism. That was the worst. Like, stop. They're systems. They're systems created by men. And those systems aren't going to survive. What is going to survive is the word of God. And those who commit their lives to following Jesus. Then verse 19, Paul says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And what you may not know is Paul is quoting a story from the Torah, from the book of Numbers, um, early in the scriptures, and it's referred to as Korah's rebellion. And Korah was a priest, part of the Levites, and he led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron because he didn't like that Moses and Aaron were in charge. So Numbers chapter 16, verse 1, says, Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, and sons of Eliav, and uh, the son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them, there were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. And they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord assembly? Verse four is one of my favorite things in all of scripture. When Moses heard this, he fell face down. 
Like they come up and they accuse Moses. And what Moses does is he just lays flat on his face and prays. That's awkward. You're doing all this wrong stuff and you start to treat like you're the most important person. Boom. Falls on his face. And first, Moses and Aaron did not set themselves above any of the people. God put them in a position of leadership. Second, Korah and his friends are priests who were set apart from the people to be holy, to make sacrifices for the people. Third, God opened the earth and swallowed all of them and all who followed them. And then he commands them. He had them all take these censers, to, uh, these like lamps, to put out these lamps. And, and after the earth opened and swallowed all of them, he commanded the rest of the priests, who are their brothers, to take the metal from their lamps and hammer it down and then put it on the altar in the tabernacle, like make it a part of the altar as a reminder to the rest of the priests not to turn against the Lord again. This is the context where Paul says, the Lord knows who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. We had seen it before. Paul and Timothy are both Jewish. They're both Torah scholars. And he's saying, you know the story? All he does is quote a sentence. You know the story? Don't put yourself above the people. And when people come and attack you, just fall on your face and pray. You know how often, as a rabbi, people come up to me and try to prove to me what they know? It's so often, it can be exhausting. Because they're like, oh, you're a rabbi? Well, let me ask you this. There's no question that follows that. Let me ask you this. It's like, with all due respect, if you have to say it, you're not, nothing that follows is going to be respectful after that. I'm just saying, with all due respect, I think you're an idiot. Well, that's not very respectful, is it? And, and people come up with all these wackadoo theories, and they attach it to scripture, and then they say, have you considered these things? No! They're weird. And often my answer to people is, listen, mystery is sexy. Everyone wants to discover something that was not previously discovered. Everybody wants to be the person who figures it out. But the truth is, the more you study, the more you know you don't know anything. The first thing you learn as you study the Bible is that you don't know much. And I've been studying it my entire life. And my dad, as a rabbi, studied his entire life before me. And he told me when I was a kid, you will never if you continue to read the scriptures every day of your life, you will always learn something new from the same scriptures you've read a thousand times. Because it's not just a book, it's alive. And the Spirit of God speaks through it. You don't actually need the secret things. What you need is to focus on the things revealed. Here's the question. Does your knowledge, does what you know and what you say, does it make you a better human? Does it make you a better spouse? Does it make you a better parent? Are you a better friend because of it? Or are you just grasping to sound smart when everyone around you kind of knows you're not? The only person that doesn't know 
It's you. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it like this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. There's so many things, secret things, that still belong to God. I I can't explain to you how the Trinity works. We could give metaphors and try to explain how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not three gods. They're one and three and three and one, but they're actually one. But it's a secret thing that belongs to God. If you spend all of your time trying to figure out that secret thing, you will not figure it out. There's things that belong to God that are still secret things. And what happens is the secret things are sexy. So we go for the secret things and we waste our lives trying to study the secret things while ignoring the things that are revealed. That's why he says that the things revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may follow the words of this law. Or in one translation it says that we might do this Torah. When we focus on the secret things and the things we argue about and the things that turn into godless chatter, even though they're about godly things, we get so focused on the secret things, we don't do the things that are actually revealed that we might live the things that we're supposed to live. If you wanna handle the word of God correctly, you're gonna have to wrestle with 40 authors of uh, books and letters that span a period of 1,500 years that ended 2,000 years ago? How do we apply ancient ideas to a modern world? Uh, how, how do you uh, help people to understand the ancient Near East and the Second Temple period? And if you've never heard those terms, you should look them up. Because it's really hard to understand the context of what you're reading if you don't understand the speakers who are speaking and the culture they're speaking to and how people heard and understood what was being said. We waste our time on things that don't matter and quarrels that bear nothing but bad fruit and are like gangrene that spread in our own bodies first and then to other people. What did the authors understand and mean? How did they listen and understand and hear? And how do we apply those words today? People make things up when they lack context. Uh, You know, I know this is a big Catholic town, so I'll pick on the Catholics a little bit, since we're not Catholics in the room. The the idea that the priest holds up wine and that it physically becomes the blood of Jesus is problematic on so many levels because there's a simple command in the Torah for Jewish people, and it goes like this. Do not drink blood. Super simple. Super simple. Don't do it. I know it's tempting, but don't do it. Even in the New Testament, in Acts 15, when the Jewish apostles tell Gentiles, non-Jewish people, what they ought to do, guess what's one of the four things? Do not drink blood. So Jewish people aren't allowed to drink blood, and Gentile people, that's everybody. Jewish people and Gentile people, none of us are allowed to drink blood, except when it turns in the blood of wine physically turns into the blood of Jesus? No. It takes 1,500 years for Martin Luther to come along and go and say, I think it was a metaphor. (laughs) And Jewish people are like, bruh, (laughs) we don't drink blood. And you're not supposed to either. 
So how do we get things so twisted? We get things twisted because of lack of context. The second is the set-apart vessel. And the set-apart vessel is in verse 20. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with all those who call on the Lord out uh, of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish, stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Here's the truth. You were not made for a common purpose. You are set apart for a special purpose. You are designed by God to do great things for the kingdom of God. It's the pattern and the order of the way things work. Israel, the Jewish people, were set apart from the nations. The priesthood was one tribe of 12 that was set apart from the rest of the nation. The high priest was set apart from the priesthood in order to do a special purpose. And you, as followers of Jesus, are set apart from those who don't follow Jesus for a specific purpose, which is to help them find Jesus. And wasting your time over quarrels and arguments that bear no fruit will not lead them to Jesus. It will only spread like gangrene or cancer. Stephen Furtick said it this way. He said, the reason we struggle with insecurity is because we compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reels. You look at Instagram, social media, nobody posts bad things. We all post like the family picture and everybody's smiling. Nobody posts the fight before the picture and the fight after the picture. Like immediately before and immediately after. And actually during, but then we got this one out of like 50 shots, they got one shot where everyone was looking at the camera and everyone was smiling. And we post that because our family's so wonderful and nice. We all love each other, we don't fight but we know that it's a highlight reel. And we look at people's highlight reels and we say, I wanna be like that person. But you don't know any, this is the problem with celebrity. You don't know any of their behind the scenes. You don't know all the pain and the struggle and the stuff that's actually happening in their lives. You only know what's meant for you to know so that you'll go see their movies. You know, until Will Smith slapped somebody on stage, we thought, what is wrong with, and then, well, he has trauma because he lived in an abusive home. His dad abused, like, there's, he's a real person that needs Jesus like the rest of us. And we see the good parts, and we compare ourselves to other people's highlight reels instead of wrestling with realizing that they have behind the scenes. People come to me all the time after I preach, and they're like, man, I wanna be just like you. Okay, it's simple. You study the scriptures your entire life and then preach for 18 years and then you preach a good sermon. Do you know, in seminary, we, taught, we were told that everyone's first 100 sermons suck. The problem is somebody's gotta let you preach 100 times. And even after that, I didn't find my own voice and my own style until I preached for like 10 years every week. And now I can preach a good sermon. And people hear that sermon and think, oh, well, if, if you wanna do what I do, you gotta put the work in to do it. This is how we know we're set apart. Verse 22, flee 
the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You know, everybody memorizes the fruits of the spirit because we were taught it in Sunday school, right? Galatians 5, also a letter of Paul. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, there are no such law. Can I make a suggestion to you? You should memorize the things of the flesh that are before that few verses before the fruits of the Spirit, because the fruits of the Spirit we're terrible at. Here's what we're good at naturally. Galatians 5 verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, which I love, and the like. And we read it and we're like, well, I've never been in an orgy. Nailed it. (laughs) I've never practiced witchcraft. Winning. (laughs) But how about discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, and the like? It's a much longer list. Fruits of the Spirit is a shorter list than the things that Paul is telling us to Verse 22, to flee the evil desires of your youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along all of those who call on the name of the Lord. Foolish, stupid arguments produce quarrels. They do not make you a better human. They do not make you a better spouse. They do not make you a better parent. They don't make you a better friend, and they definitely don't make you a better follower of Jesus, who, by the way, suffered for doing none of the things that are of the flesh, but only lived out the fruits of the Spirit. So flee the desires of evil desires of your youth. There's a few ways you can do that. Go to therapy, for real. I've been in weekly therapy for the last three years and I hate it. And I've cursed at my counselor so many times because I don't want to deal with the things that I don't want to deal with. You have an incredible ministry in this church called Journey to Wholeness which I went through. It's amazing, and it's awful, and it's painful, and I hate it, but I also love it because it helps you flee the evil desires of your youth. You don't know why you do what you do. You don't know why you feel what you feel because you haven't done the work to dig into the things that you've been avoiding your entire life since you were like 10 years old. I named myself the happy rabbi. I have my own hashtag. The truth is, the longer hashtag is the happy rabbi who was sad since he was 10, but he didn't know it and avoided pain. (laughs) But it defeats the purpose of hashtags. It's that long. The last one is the humble servant. Verse 24 says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. It's so hard to live what we preach. The first step to living what you preach is acknowledging how hard it is. If you think it's easy to live what you preach, I promise you, no one around you thinks you live what you preach. You're the only one. 
instead of running from it, face it. Deal with the pain because the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow the words of this law. Rick Warren says, talks about humility, and he says it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking more of others. It's not, you can say, I have no problem saying and believing that I am good at what I do. I am. What I'm concerned about in my own heart is that I'll start to believe it to the point where I don't need the Holy Spirit. And I don't ever wanna get there. Humility is recognizing place. (laughs) Humility is knowing that God is here and I am way down here. And through his grace and mercy, he gives me the opportunity to teach out of his scriptures as I figure out how to live what I preach. And Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, you, it's so funny to think about uh, people that disagree with us and how we argue with them, especially on the internet. I posted a Rick Warren quote and somebody on my Facebook page wrote, Rick Warren is a charlatan. And I was like, I don't even know what a charlatan is, but it sounds bad. (laughs) Two, delete the comment because I don't care about you. Because you're so stuck in what you think is true that you're missing all kinds of wonderful things. Can I just encourage you? Don't become an accuser like the devil. That's what he does. And don't come to a place where you think, listen, the prayer we often pray for people, When we pray for people we disagree with, we pray, God, I just change their heart. But here's the better prayer. Change them or change me. And when you pray that prayer, almost always, he changes you. Because there's a blind spot. And God is trying to help you understand the blind spot. If the Holy Spirit only agrees with you, You're not listening. And I would wager it's not even the Holy Spirit speaking. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't just agree with you and celebrate how well you're doing. The Holy Spirit convicts us of the evil desires of our youth. Not for shame and guilt and condemnation, but to bring us to a place for our good. He wants to weed those things out. And humility is being honest about yourself and how you relate to the world. If you want to be effective in talking about the scriptures, whether on stage or just in conversation, you have to live what you preach. And the best way to do that is 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Let me tell you what your calling is this morning. You're called to be an unashamed worker, a set-apart vessel, and a humble servant of the one whose grace 
and suffering makes it possible for us to live what we preach. If you've never accepted Jesus before as Lord and Savior, I just wanna encourage you to do it. It's super simple. You just say yes, because you know that the way you've been going isn't working. You know what you're doing isn't working and that, well, if you think you're always right, I want to suggest to you to ask the Lord where you're wrong and let him fix it. And for everyone in this room and watching, whether we're newly coming to Jesus or have been walking with Jesus for a long time, it's time for us to give up on all the silly things we're arguing about and focus in on the things that make us better spouse, better person, a better parent, a better follower of Jesus. So I just wanna lead you in a prayer. Lord, if there are people in this room that want to uh, give their lives to Jesus today, I pray they would pray this prayer with me. Lord, I confess my sins to you and I ask you to forgive me and be the Lord of my life. And for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time and need a fresh infilling of your spirit, Lord, would you help us to be unashamed workers, set apart vessels, and would you give us the humility to live what we preach, knowing that we always need more of you in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before I finish it, in our tradition, we say what's called the ironic benediction. It's uh, not the ironic benediction. I thought that when I was a kid. It's named after Aaron, the high priest. It comes from Numbers chapter six. And I'm gonna chant it over you in Hebrew and then I'll pray it over you in English as well. You say, I don't know. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew On That. The Chew On That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week. Thank you.